Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. We are recording this on April 14th, 2021. And our guest today is defense attorney Gerald Griggs, who is based in Atlanta, has dedicated his life to working for justice for all. And he is currently involved in a very high profile case. And that is involving singer R. Kelly and all the sex trafficking charges against him. Gerald, welcome to the program. We're so thrilled you're here. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on the program. Oh, it's great. I know how busy you are, and we actually had to book you out almost two months in advance. So so we're we're grateful that you're here. So what's the update? Where are you on all these cases, and how many cases is R. Kelly facing right now? Well, currently, he's facing four cases. There are three that are set to go to trial. One is in New York and two are in Chicago. One's in federal court in uh, Chicago and one's in state court. And of course, he has a federal case in New York. And what's your involvement in these cases? Okay, I represent a couple of the families that have been affected. I also represent a couple of the accusers who are named and expected to be witnesses in the trial. It's it's really incredible. I mean, I think for most people, know just the, the highlights, if you will, or the, the summary of the cases. But basically, you know, he's facing a variety of racketeering charges, sex trafficking charges. He is accused of um, basically taking in women, you know, grooming them, watching them, um, using his celebrity to bring in underage girls and then you know, basically trapping them in his life and then separating them from their families. It's it's an extraordinary series of allegations against someone who was such an icon. Yes. I mean, it's a sordid history of um, allegations um, against Mr. Kelly uh, going back 25 years uh, over a, a, a complete career. Uh, and we believe that once the evidence uh, is presented to these juries, he will be convicted. Uh, and so, you know, it's been a very long journey uh, supporting the survivors, supporting the families and finally getting to our day in court. And we're hopeful later on this year that that will happen in, in all the cases uh, and justice will be meted out. Uh, but it's been a long journey for these families, the Savage family and many of the accusers uh, who have come forward. It took a lot of courage and strength. Uh, to come forward in three documentaries to, to testify 
uh, to the FBI and other local authorities about all of the situations that have occurred around Mr. Kelly. Of course, and then the pandemic has further delayed everything, all of the cases across the country. And I know he was trying to use that as the excuse to get out of uh, jail because he was afraid of getting coronavirus. Give me a break, please. Yeah, I mean, you know, COVID threw a wrench into all of the justice system, but now it's starting to come back. You know, again, they have rescheduled all of his hearings and all of his court dates, and we're hopeful the end of the year we will at least get to one of the trials uh, so that the evidence can come out and and that the families and the victims uh, can be made whole. Absolutely. And we'll be following that. I hope that you'll come back when the cases get get going. All right. We have two extraordinary cases to focus on this week. One, an Oklahoma City criminal defense attorney who fell in love with a client of hers is being accused of helping him to kill his ex-girlfriend and her parents. But first, an ex-NFL player, Philip Adams, is accused of going on a murder spree, killing six people and then killing himself during a police standoff. This all happened last week on April 7th. Originally, five people, including two young children and their grand- and their grandparents, were fatally shot inside a home and around the home at Rock Hill in South Carolina. And then later on, the sixth shooting victim died. So the 911 calls started coming in around 445 and dispatchers received multiple calls. There were calls from the people who were injured. There were neighbors who said that they could hear at least 20 shots being fired. And at the center of all of this is 32-year-old Philip Adams, and he is accused of going to a neighbor's home and just started shooting. I have to tell you, Gerald, I think, you know, this is a massive tragedy without question, but the whole country has been gripped by this because when we think of someone going on a killing spree like this, we never expected to be someone who has achieved such incredible success, someone who is an icon, the kind of kid who was a superstar when he was in high school and in college and made it to, you know, the NFL. Very few people achieve that level of success. Uh, And I think we're having trouble, you know, processing that. Yeah, I mean, when you're part of the 1% that makes it, you know, because of your talent to a league like the NFL, you don't expect things like this to happen. Um, But we have seen this before. Uh, We saw it before with Aaron Hernandez and and so many others uh, that have been uh, in trouble with the law. And and our hope is that, you know, we can get to the bottom of what actually led to this because it's it's completely uh, unfortunate and horrific uh, for the community, especially that family. Uh, to go through that type of pain. So I'm hopeful as they continue to investigate, we can get down to the motive because right now it just seems like a senseless act of violence, but there has to be something that under undergirded this, that caused this. And my hope is that with a thorough and, and complete investigation, we can figure out what the motive was uh, so that we can prevent these from happening in the future. Absolutely. And there are a few things already that are coming out that are making people look deeper into certain areas of his life. So we're going to go through a little bit more of the crime and then we're going to get into um, what was going on in Philip's life, because that's very important to understand what what his challenges were up until this point. 
So the first people who were shot were two air conditioning repairmen who had been working at the home of a local prominent doctor named Robert Leslie. Neighbors said, again, they just heard all these shots. And this is the afternoon. So here is a clip from a news conference that was held by the York County Sheriff. Kevin Tolson is the sheriff, and this is courtesy of the Washington Post. The first two victims, obviously, that we encountered were the two uh, air conditioning techs who were outside the home in the driveway at their work vans. Then we immediately began to assemble a team to clear the house of Dr. Robert Leslie. Uh, Once we cleared the home, we, uh, we found Dr. Robert Leslie, his wife, Barbara, and their two grandchildren in a room in the back of the house, uh, all deceased with gunshot wounds. So inside the house, four people were found dead. 70-year-old Dr. Robert Leslie and 69-year-old Barbara Leslie, who was his wife. Their grandchildren, nine-year-old Ada and five-year-old Noah. I think this is the part that everyone is very much struggling with. Who could shoot two young children like this? Who could do that? No one in their right mind could do this. Um, And then the two repairmen who died have been identified as 38-year-old James Lewis and 38-year-old Robert Shook. The York County Sheriff says that Philip Adams, then after shooting everyone at Dr. Leslie's house, then went back to his parents' home and barricaded himself. Now, Philip had moved back in with his parents because he was having financial troubles, and he was also apparently struggling with some mental illness, according to his sister. This is the part where it gets, I mean, this tragedy went on for hours. Police used a loudspeaker to communicate with Philip, trying to encourage him to surrender. They sent a robot into the house to be able to see what was going on. They managed to negotiate the release of Philip's two elderly parents, and his mother is in a wheelchair. So his parents got out of the house safely, and by 2, 2.30 in the morning, the police finally went into the house. They had a search warrant at this point, and they found they found Philip Adams dead. He had shot himself in the head. And he was found in the bedroom. It's horrible, tragic. Oh my God. I, I, the carnage is unbelievable. They retrieved two weapons. And again, Gerald, everybody's asking why. Now, this is interesting. The Associated Press has reported that Dr. Leslie may have treated Philip. And when I say may, it's police say that they are investigating this. They don't know yet what exactly was their relationship. And then a local elected official named Ralph Norman told several news outlets, including uh, WBTV, that Dr. Leslie had treated Philip as a patient, I'm quoting him, and that he stopped giving Philip medication and that's what triggered the killing. We don't know if that's true. We don't know. That is what has been reported. And right now, investigators are trying to verify all that information. So... Let's take a look at his career, Gerald. I mean, if these are just the few things that we're starting to hear and we don't know the accuracy, I get the sense that there is someone here in crisis, that Philip Adams was in crisis. And that's what it appears. It appears, you know, if we are to believe all of the media reports, you had an individual who was definitely in crisis, mental health crisis, uh, and had been reaching out to, to individuals and it appears that if this was, in fact, his doctor, um, that, you know, he lashed out because he could not get the medication. 
And so, you know, in situations like this, people uh, turn to self-medicating and some of them have, you know, mental breaks. And it appears that Philip uh, had a mental break, if this is accurate from the reporting, and lashed out. But it is completely horrific uh, to think um, of the children that were harmed. Of course, the other victims as well. Uh, but the children that were harmed, that makes it so so hard to to understand. And that's why I'm hopeful that as the investigation continues, we will get more information about why this happened, this unfortunate and horrific event happened to the, this family and, and ripped apart. I know a very close knit community in Rock Hill. You know, my ex-wife is from South Carolina. So I've been in that part of South Carolina before. And I know that's a very close knit uh, community. So I, I know they're struggling with healing. And I think more information as it comes will help the healing process and we still have to talk about the pan the pandemic and problem of gun violence in this country, which is underscored by a case like this. Absolutely. I was also really, uh, really touched by the statements that have been made by both sides, both families, and about the prayers and the working on forgiveness. And um, this is a community, both families very religious, very Christian. Mm -hmm. And I'm always so impressed when people can find this level of comfort and forgiveness at a time of such violence. And I think they really are setting the tone for everyone else to follow, um, to have some compassion and understanding, to try and get to the bottom of of what happened here. So let's look at um, Philip's career, because I think if we look at his career and then we look at the last year or two and then the last few days and weeks of his life, things start to become just a little bit clearer, a little bit clearer. So he was 32 years old and he had played um, in the NFL. He had played for amazing teams like the San Francisco 49ers, the Seahawks, the Patriots. He played 78 games over six seasons for six teams. He finished his career in 2015 playing for the Atlanta Falcons and he had suffered several injuries. He had a very debilitating knee injury, excuse me, ankle injury early on. And he had two concussions in three games in 2012. I think this is going to be very important, the concussions here. Um, his former agent told the New York Times that Philip had made $3.6 million over the course of his career, yet he was having very serious money troubles. He was mm -hmm. basically broke. He couldn't pay his child support and he was living with his parents. I mean, no grown man wants to live in, you know, live home with his parents. It, it kind of adds to your depression, you know, when you get to that point, although it's always good to be surrounded by family. Um, the agent said that he was trying to help him to see if he could help him get a job. He couldn't get a job. They were talking about maybe relocating him, but he has a son and didn't want to leave. Uh, again, Here's someone with a child who understands the value of mentoring and having a child. So to kill two children is just so heinous, just so heinous. Now, we've said that Philip's family is overwhelmed with grief over what their son has done. They say he was a good kid. The Adams family immediately issued a statement saying, quote, the Philip we know is not a man that is capable of the atrocities that he committed. Here's a clip of Philip's father, Alonzo Adams, talking to the NBC affiliate in Charlotte, WCNC. He's a good kid. He was a good kid. And he, uh, I think the football messed him up. So Gerald, the, the family is questioning whether football and all of the blows to his head over those decades somehow may have destroyed Philip's brain. 
Do you think that this may end up being a factor in this investigation? I definitely think it's going to be a factor in this investigation. And, you know, over the last decade, we've seen report after report about CTE uh, and, and the issues of brain injury in the NFL. We saw what, what happened to, unfortunately, what happened to Junior Seau and taking his life. We saw what happened with Aaron Hernandez and after uh, serving a substantial amount of time in jail, taking his life and then his brain was studied. And we see um, the results of the continued impact on someone's brain and how it changes um, their personality and causes them to have uh, very serious issues uh, long term. So I think in Phillip's case, we need to look at that because I think that may help to explain uh, some type of this, this type of behavior, because as you said, he was a father. So it's, it's kind of out of character from what his parents are saying. This is the type of action that Philip would take. So I just think that, you know, in the course of the investigation, I think that CTE needs to be one of the, the lead things that they look at to try to explain why this behavior took place. And usually that is not generally part of an autopsy, but in this case, the authorities have decided it must be part of the investigation. And that is why the medical examiner is going to be running extra tests with the help of Boston University, which is considered a leader in the field of CTE. And that stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And this is a degenerative condition and of the brain, which is caused by long-term trauma to the brain, repetitive blows and trauma. And this condition can cause violent mood swings and other cognitive disorders in athletes and in soldiers. It's not just um, boxers and football players. It's, it's our military. It's, yeah. it's our war heroes, our veterans who have suffered from this. So the test results are going to take some time to get to the bottom of uh, what was going on in his brain. But I think, Gerald, I agree with you that that is going to be very telling. What um, is interesting is that, you know, the NFL players and the league had a lawsuit about this. And as part of a settlement, the best I can understand it is that anyone who, ret who retired um, by 2014 would be included in testing and getting um, some diagnostics and some care as a result of that. But what happened here in Philip's case is that he didn't qualify. He missed the deadline by a year because he stopped playing in 2015. And according to Philip's sister, Lauren Adams, she told USA Today that her brother had been struggling with the NFL to try and get disability. And his agent confirms that, that he had been arguing with them that he needed help, he needed yeah. more from them, and he wasn't getting it. And I'm wondering, do you think legally that there's going to be any potential liability here that you have a man who is reaching out for help, is in dire need of it, um, and yeah. everyone is worried that it could have been his NFL career. Do, do you think that that may play a role in here as well? I think it may. Uh, I think it may play a role from the family uh, of the victim's perspective uh, because there's going to probably be some litigation around wrongful death. And if there shows some type of notice to the NFL and a fade to act because of something that happened with Mr. Um, Adams, there may be a cause of action there. Now, of course, this is all preliminarily 
uh, because we still need to understand why these events happen and if they did have any connection. But I do think that, you know, at some point there's going to be that di- difficult question of whether or not his NFL playing career had some type of effect on the actions he took that day. So I think that, you know, in any good lawyer um, would look down that road uh, because clearly we have evidence over the past of, pr- of prior NFL superstars because of CTE um, doing things that were out of character that were caused by their NFL playing career. Uh, so I just think that, you know, that is a line of, of inquiry and discourse that needs to happen uh, because, again, from what Phillips' family was saying, um, this is completely out of his character. Uh, and, and he didn't show any signs of acting out this violently uh, in the past. Yeah, even his um, high school and college coaches said he was just such a kind young man and really mild-mannered. And these are the things that one would notice early on in an individual. And just someone who was really just laid back and lovely to be with. Uh, now, I think there are some additional factors here. There's certainly the potential of all of the blows to the head and if CTE was at work here. But I also think there's the additional trauma, and this is the emotional trauma, of someone who is a very successful athlete and has made it to, if you will, a pinnacle of one's career. And then when that career ends, it is a very dark day that you are faced with when, you know, Everything you know, your passion, I mean, since you were a child, you've been working to be a football player, you become an NFL player, and then it all comes to um, an end. I think that the emotional devastation connected with that um, probably was weighing heavily on him. I don't see how it couldn't, just normal circumstances taking CTE out of the picture. Yeah, And don't forget, probably the chronic pain that he has associated with that because many NFL stars after they retire deal with chronic pain from the injuries, not associated with CTE, but you know, knee issues, ankle issues, back issues. And, and that's why, you know, sometimes their, their uh, personal life and everything else goes downhill because of, you know, the toll that that takes on the body. So they also need to look at that again, that's not excusing uh, the criminal behavior. But it also helps to explain why he might have been in a state of depression because of the constant pain, both emotionally and physically. Absolutely. The sister said that recently his mental health had degraded very quickly and he was starting to show signs of unusual behavior. But she stopped short of telling USA Today what exactly that behavior was. She said that the family noticed signs of mental illness and, quote, that was extremely concerning to the family, like something they had never seen before and that he was indeed struggling. His sister said that he was always super laid back, but recently he had a bad temper. And then in 2015, he moved back to South Carolina. This would have been at the end of his football career. And then at this point, he was he wanted nothing to do with baseball, which is interesting. He wouldn't watch baseball. He didn't want, uh, excuse me, not baseball, football. He wouldn't talk about football. He would want nothing to do with it. Um, very, very disheartened by his experiences. And then about 18 months ago seems to be um, a point in which things are quickly changing. And that's when he moved back to Rock Hill and back with his parents. The sister says his hygiene was terrible. This is a man who took good care of himself. He was very good looking mm-hmm. and he withdrew from people. She said, uh, again, 
He was struggling with this disability claim. He was having trouble finding work, which is always a problem for all athletes, no matter uh, what they play. It's always a struggle to then find work when you are no longer, you know, making your money off your special talents. So, um, I don't know where this is going to go from here. I think really everyone is is going to have to wait until the autopsy results are back from the brain um, examination because I think that is going to be the most telling. We are already getting the narrative of all the things that were going wrong in his life. Now let's talk about the victims here. Uh, Dr. Robert Leslie and his wife Barbara had four children and eight grandchildren, two of those grandchildren were killed in this massacre. And Dr. Leslie was well known because he had practiced locally for a long time. He had opened two urgent care centers. He wrote a weekly column for the Charlotte Observer. And he also wrote a book that was called Angels in the ER. And just about everyone in town had been treated by Dr. Leslie, including Philip's father, um, had gone to see him. I mean, every, he was the local doctor in town. He was the guy in the ER when you got brought in. So it's very painful, I think, for this small community to deal with, really, think about it, two icons, two icons that you have lost in this community over a horrendous tragedy. Oh, it's overwhelming, Gerald. Yeah, it, it has to be unimaginable. And again, Rock Hill is a very close-knit community. And, and to lose uh, probably two pillars of the community in a, such a violent and horrific way, and of course, losing uh, members of, of the doctor's family, uh, his grandchildren, um, this is going to be something that, that that tears at the fabric of that community. But the good the good news about it is, you know, from what you, you said, it's a very religious, two religious families, and hopefully they can lean on that, that spirituality to help you know, heal these wounds um, because, you know, these type of wounds run very, very deep. Uh, so hopefully once the investigation is over and they can give a full cause to this, um, people can start that healing process. Yes. Now on to our second case where an Oklahoma City criminal defense attorney who fell in love with her client is now being accused of helping him to kill his ex-girlfriend and her parents. This is crazy. I mean, honestly, there is no better word for it. It is just crazy. And the fact that these two, although they stand accused and, of course, are presumed innocent, thought that they could get away with this <laughs> is the other part. We have a female defense attorney who has been charged with three counts of murder along with her boyfriend. But this wasn't just any girlfriend that that this guy allegedly wanted gone. This was the girlfriend who was accusing the client of domestic violence. And that is the reason that this client had ended up in the attorney's office to begin with. She was defending him against these allegations. Okay. I mean, it's like the stars are aligning for murder here. This is off the charts. I... Very, very awful. And I mean, it violates the first canon of, of ethics that you are supposed to have professional relationship with your client at all times and never let that transition into anything else, especially not into murder. Um, you know, you can never counsel your client on how to commit a crime. You can only defend them uh, in the crimes that have been alleged. So there's so much wrong here. And then, you know, for it to be a domestic violence case that started all of this 
the lawyer should have known um, that there's a propensity for anyone that is charged with domestic violence to have potentially a history of domestic violence. And you're not supposed to counsel them on how to be better at the domestic violence. So um, this, this, like you said, is crazy. And um, it's a very uh, interesting case that can be a case study to a lot of young lawyers in law school on what not to do. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Definitely don't do this. Okay, let's let's look at the individuals involved and what has been presented so far. Keegan Harrows is 37 years old. Now, Keegan is the criminal defense attorney. Her boyfriend slash client is 39-year-old Barry Titus, and they are charged with killing three people. Police say Keegan and Barry are the two masked killers seen on surveillance video approaching the murder scene at 3 a.m. on September 7th of 2019. Now, here's the problem, Gerald. They, the two individuals were seen in the surveillance video have masks on. So there's no way that you can know for sure who these two are. However, investigators claim that based on the body types and the heights of the two of them together, it seems to match up the figures in the surveillance video. I would ask you as an attorney, does that seem like almost the weakest part of this? That seems very questionable. And, you know, you have to have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's why, you know, these are mere allegations against these two individuals. I would hope that, you know, the state has more than just um, surveillance camera mapping of body types. I mean, you need to have something that, you know, I mean, if you have a circumstantial case, you have to have something that ties them uh, more than just, you know, surveillance footage of masked individuals whose body types fit. I mean, there are millions of individuals in the world who could wear a mask and have the same body size as anyone else. So, you know, it, it sounds interesting, um, to say yeah. the least. Yeah, it is. And it's just one component of it. But I agree with you. I feel like this is perhaps the weakest part. But sometimes when you take all these pieces and you tell the story in its totality, you get a different picture. Yes. Um, and I think that's where the investigators are are headed toward. So the other thing is that the surveillance camera also caught a car matching Keegan's 2010 Lexus. Now, when they say matching, I think they're saying it looks just like the car, but I don't think they can definitively say. But again, it's it's interesting. This, to me, is when things get very tricky. So then the video stops. And it stops because the two assailants cut the electricity to the house. And then the two assailants broke down the door. And that is when the murders occurred. Three people in the house were shot dead. Killed were 43-year-old Tiffany Icor. Tiffany is the ex-girlfriend, the woman making the domestic violence allegations against the client. Mm -hmm. And her parents, 65-year-old Jack and 69-year-old Evelyn Chandler. Investigators believe that Tiffany was targeted because she had accused Barry Titus of beating and strangling her in 2017. And this would have happened just a few months after they started dating. You know, it's also interesting. I was looking at the photos of both the attorney Keegan and then Tiffany, the victim here. They look very similar. 
I'm just, I mean, I just, I know it's, it's a weird aside. It has nothing to do with anything, but I'm like, oh my God, those two look really similar. Just had to say that from a woman's perspective. (laughs) (laughs) It's just observation of life. Mm -hmm. Um, So Tiffany actually had an active protective order against Barry at the time of her death. And Barry was awaiting trial on those charges. And remember, Keegan, his girlfriend, attorney, was representing him. Okay, I know it's kind of confusing with all these players, but I just really want everyone to understand because this is crucial now to this next part of the narrative. So before the murders, investigators claim that Keegan, the attorney, tried to get the domestic violence charges dropped. Now, okay, now any attorney would try to do that because they're defending the client, but it's the lengths to which Keegan allegedly went that has authorities really concerned. Apparently, this is how she handled this. Authorities say Keegan, the attorney, found one of her other clients, asked this client to allegedly plant drugs in the porch of Tiffany's home. Turns out that these drugs were fake. It was just like powdered sugar or something. But this client, according to authorities, then snitched and told the authorities, hey, let me tell you that Tiffany, she's running drugs. So they go, they check the porch and then they find this substance and then they say, but wait a minute, this is fake. Okay, now this is happening before the murder. So um, unless you can see all the, this is what I'm saying, you start putting all these pictures together and you're like, I'm beginning, look, uh, again, innocent until proven guilty. But based on what I'm hearing here, it sounds like this attorney is running a criminal enterprise, not a criminal defense law firm. Yeah, and you should never, ever, ever um, counsel your client to commit a crime, especially not be the mastermind of the crime. And, you know, one of the maxims you also have to understand as a criminal defense attorney is you become the main um, target if your client gets in trouble. So if this client that you asked allegedly to plant the drugs is, is arrested, first thing they're going to turn on is the lawyer who told them to do it because now they have a big fish to hand over to law enforcement uh, upon which to build a case. So none of this makes sense at all. And I mean, it's definitely an interesting case to watch. Uh, it's a comedy of errors, but the good part is that it's still a circumstantial case that can be defended. But when all the stars start to align, you know, circumstantial cases do become convictions. Right. And DNA will come into it, but uh, it's, you know, it's only against one of them, apparently. So one month before the triple homicide, so we've got, you know, the planning of the drugs, allegedly. So one month before the triple homicide, Keegan, the attorney, allegedly bought Barry, her boyfriend slash client, an AR-15 rifle. Now, the problem with this is that Barry has a prior criminal history and he is not permitted to legally purchase, own, be near, touch, have in his possession a firearm. But his honey allegedly buys it for him. This creates another legal problem for Bonnie and Clyde here. So Barry had recently been released from federal prison for an illegal firearms conviction. Okay. 
Mm. Now, he really in particular cannot be having any guns around him. So authorities say that the shell casings from the rifle that she bought him apparently match casings find, uh, excuse me, found at the, at the triple homicide. I think that's going to be important. What do you think? I think that's the linchpin. And uh, I think that's what people were waiting to hear. What is that nugget that connects us all together? And if they can connect the gun to the lawyer, uh, to her boyfriend, and then to the crime scene with a car that matches the description of her car with video of body types that match, now you have a stronger circumstantial case and you're getting closer and closer to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think what the prosecution in this case is going to try to do they're going to flip the um, the former client that, that allegedly planted the drugs, and then they're going to try to flip the boyfriend to get the big fist, which is the, the attorney. And if they are successful in doing that, you got convictions all the way around. Now, why do you find her um, more reprehensible than um, the boyfriend, Barry? Is it because she had sworn an oath? Because she's an attorney and an officer of the court. And I think that's how um, the judges and the, the other lawyers are going to look at that, particularly the prosecutor. You swear an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States and whichever state you're in. So you should be held to a higher standard to know better than to get involved in these situations. Uh, so I think that's why. Uh, but ultimately, if they find that he was a trigger man, I mean, they're not going to cut him a sweetheart deal but they are going to give him the ability to maybe see the light of day at some point. Okay. What's also confusing here is that investigators say that they found each of the victims had been shot with at least two different caliber weapons. Mm. I don't know what that means. Does that mean that each of the assailants was carrying a different weapon and they each shot? It'll be fascinating, especially if someone does flip, who knows? Um, because that's the only way I think we're going to get the complete inside story. Now, okay, now let's get back to the murders and some more evidence. Investigators say that they found a ball cap near the murder house, right where the, the car was parked. And the DNA in that ball cap matched Barry Titus, the client. How important is that, Gerald? That is the smoking gun. And so when you have DNA evidence that you can link to an individual at the location where you had a car that matches the description of the car scene at the murder scene, now you're really tying up the loose ends. And there was a prosecutor who always used to say, you know, you know, putting together a case is like putting together a puzzle. Sometimes you don't see all of the pieces, but you start to see that the puzzle is taking the shape of a lion. I don't have to have all of the pieces of the puzzle to make you believe beyond a reasonable doubt that it's a lion in that picture. That DNA is one of those pieces of the puzzle that are important to show that there is a lion or that there's potentially a conviction for murder against these individuals. It is such a case that is fascinating. Well, the two of them are charged with three counts of first-degree murder and one count of first-degree first burglary. Now, both say they are innocent of the charges and they are both being held on charges stemming from the purchase of that rifle. That is a whole separate charge and the two of them have been held on that for the last year. 
Keegan is facing an additional charge of witness intimidation for allegedly having her client plant the drugs in the home of the domestic violence victim. And then the district attorney in this case actually said it was, you know, when she announced that um, the charges it was very interesting. She said she said she apologized to the public for it taking so long. But she said that the pandemic had slowed down the investigation. Apparently, she had come under a lot of criticism saying, OK, like, what have you learned in this, you know, since 2019, since, you know, this family of three had been murdered? Um, it was very interesting to hear her um, address that in this case. That's interesting. Maybe, maybe the pandemic slowed down the testing at the crime lab of the DNA uh, or maybe ballistics, but that's very interesting for a 2019 case to be affected in charging the case, uh, you know, during the pandemic. Now it may affect trying the case because, you know, I'm sure they had a backlog like everybody else and were probably trying 2019, 2018 cases in 2020 when the pandemic shut down the judicial branch. So that's interesting. Yeah, I think so too. It is now time for our comments section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about on our social media, which means it is time for Owen Michael to walk us through what everyone's talking about. Hi, Owen. Hi, Anna. Hi, Gerald. Yes, we do. We get comments across our social media platforms and on the truecrimedaily.com site, of course, and we read them all. So stop by and, and weigh in. Uh, Anna particularly likes to uh, respond to our YouTube commenters and uh, we appreciate do. all your support. I do. I love hearing from everyone. I love the interactive nature. I also love to hear people's theories. Sometimes I miss something or someone has a, an observation. Absolutely. It's just, I, I really, I love the interactive nature of it. Sorry. Well, uh, not at all. And that's one of the, the nice things about digital is that you get the, you get a kind of a two way street with your, with your commenters and your viewers and your listeners and your readers. So with that being said, here's a couple of this week. Um, this first one, we've got a sheriff's deputy, excuse me, a sheriff's department dispatcher in Louisiana was fired from her job after she allegedly kept $1.2 million mistakenly transferred into her bank account mistakenly <laughs> mistakenly mistakes happen you know what's a couple of decim decimal points um here's the details kellen spedoni had uh, 82 dollars and 56 cents in a brokerage account she was closing due to a clerical error charles schwab and company deposited 1.2 million dollars into the account that's 1,205,619 dollars to be exact because of course it has to be random numbers uh kellen spedoni allegedly used some of the money to buy a new car and a house uh, quote, Schwab made several attempts to contact Spadoni, but she never answered her phone or responded to text messages or emails, <laughs> according to the prosecutor. Um, this one got a lot of uh, opinions online. A lot of people had lots to say. Uh, you should stop by and check it out. Shanta N said $1.2 million and she bought a Hyundai Genesis. Lol. Okay. She deserves jail just for that. Jennifer W <laughs> says, yes, I was on her side until I read that part. Look, uh, no disrespect, no, no, no problems with Hyundai Genesis. Um, maybe you kind of keep a low profile. You don't want to go out and exactly. buy or a Tesla or something like that. So, uh, you know, maybe that's uh, in her favor. Uh, Amber F said, uh, must have been common core math. Uh, that's a good <laughs> point. I don't understand common core math. Luckily I don't have children. Um, and it's, it's a mess. Let me tell you, it's just, a, it's yeah, just, it's yeah. not what we grew up with. It's like basically one plus one equals two. That's how we grew up. 
I, I have like, seen examples of it and I'm glad I never have to take math again for the rest of my life. Yeah. Apologies to all students. Uh, and Antoinette B said, okay. And, and excuse me, she said, okay. And that's y'all's fault for, uh, that's not hers. And she started a hashtag free Kellen. So, uh, <laughs> she's got her supporters there. Hey, uh, Owen, can I ask Gerald a question, a legal question? So, I mean, does she have to return this money or was there any obligation on her end when this money appeared in her account? This was a, this was a lot of uh, people asking this question online. So Gerald, yeah. That's, yeah. that's a great question. We had a, a similar fact pattern back in law school about this. And I think the class was split right down the middle. And I mean, in certain States um, it's illegal to, to, to keep this. So it just depends on the state. Uh, but, you know, I understand what people are saying, you know, use the What's the old rule? Finders, keepers, losers, right. weepers. That's but right. sometimes in the law, that doesn't apply. And so when, you know, Charles Schwab was trying to reach out to her and get in touch with her, you know, they were trying to get their uh, lost or mislaid items back in Georgia. That would probably be theft of a lost or mislaid item. And, uh-huh. you know, if they use their due diligence to try to get in touch with you and you keep it, they can charge you with felonies. It seems like there would certainly be some terms and conditions updates in some of Schwab's uh, accounts going forward after this. I'm sure they don't want to <laughs> repeat that one. <laughs> uh, for our next case, we've got uh, out of uh, 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 another Louisiana person. This one, uh, this man was arrested in Orlando after refusing to receive a temperature check at Disney World. Uh, he brought his family there for a vacation. He said he spent too much money. He said he spent $15,000 on the trip. Uh, and he spent uh, that money, said, uh, I spent too much to be arrested for trespassing. Disney staff and Orange County Sheriff's deputies stopped Kelly Sills after he reportedly bypassed a temperature check outside a restaurant. And then he refused to cooperate. Uh, he's quoted as saying on the uh, deputy's body camera footage, will you take my temperature before you kick me out, please? They'll do that in jail, a deputy answered. <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of reactions to that one as well. People are still feeling the whole uh, COVID lockdown situation and all of the uh, all of the rules and regulations about that. Michelle C says, "Well, obviously he has bond money. LOL, fifteen thousand dollars on a on a vacation. It, yeah, that sounds like maybe." Mm-hmm. Joe R says, "Am I the only one that thinks he's an idiot for spending fifteen thousand dollars for Disney World? He should have been arrested just for that idiocy." <laughs> People have strong opinions on Disney. Uh, that's uh, not on Disney or anything else. Um, <laughs> Tina B uh, takes it to the next point. I just want to know if his family stayed at Disney and enjoyed the rest of their vacation. God, I hope so. <laughs> that's all we got. Wow. that's It seems, okay, yeah, $15,000 is a lot of money, but I look at it this way. If you go through all this trouble, you've waited this long through the pandemic, life has been miserable, you finally get to take your family out for a vacation, you're going to let something as minor as this ruin your entire trip and everything that you've planned. I mean, it sounds like the guy just snapped. It was like, this is it. This is the, it's like this pandemic, I've had it up to here. But in the end, it ruined people, his trip. You know, a lot of people do kind of stress out on the Disney vacations as well. I mean, that, <laughs> a lot of planning and a lot of money, obviously, going through it. Uh, it's uh, Sometimes people forget to enjoy it. Uh, also, I have to imagine that Florida has, uh, for good or for ill, uh, a certain reputation about, uh, you know, hands-off on regulations and things like that. So maybe he wasn't used to encountering that on the, the Disney facilities. Who yeah. can say? But, uh, uh, yeah, they took his temperature in jail. Oh, okay. And was it normal? (laughs) And they they put a mask. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. He was uh, forced to comply at that point. So, and they put a mask uh, on him. Good one, Gerald. <laughs> get some uh, updates when we have on that one. Ay, ay, ay. Well, as always, Owen, fascinating, crazy cases. Always enjoy seeing you. See you next week. Indeed. See you guys next week. Bye. Gerald, that is our program for this week. Thank you so much for making the time for us. We really appreciate it. We know how busy you are. Where can people find you on social media or find your law firm if they want to follow all the amazing causes that you're fighting for? Um, I, I know that our producer, she was trying to reach you to confirm for a date and you're like, I can't talk right now. I'm at a protest. You know? <laughs> I mean, that is that is Gerald's spirit right there. Always fighting. So where can people find you? Always fighting. And you can find me on all social platforms at Attorney Griggs, A-T-T-O-R-N-E-Y-G-R-I-G-G-S, or at the law firm's uh, website, www.geraldagriggs.com, or at the hashtag Justice Fighter. Always in the community, always fighting uh, for justice. Like you said, she called me right in the middle of a protest. We were fighting for our voting rights. So wherever the front line is going to be, that's where I will be fighting for people's rights. Thank you, Gerald. Really appreciate it. It was a pleasure having you. And uh, really, we'd love for you to come back, especially when the R. Kelly trials begin. We'd love your insight on it. Definitely. I would love to come back and, and enjoy this platform. It's been a lot of fun. And, um, you know, when uh, Mr. Kelly goes to trial, um, we will return. Okay, that'd be terrific. You can find me uh, on all social media at Anna G News, Anna with one N. And of course, you can find our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Get updates and subscribe to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com because that is what Owen Michael is always working on. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. <laughs>